Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Welcome to episode two. I'm Andy Rowe, and today I'm joined by Ollie Ollerton. In this episode, you're going to hear about his incredible journey from SAS soldier to shootouts in Iraq and rescuing kids from child trafficking cartels in Thailand. His new book, Scar Tissue, is out now, so if you like the way he tells a story, go and get your hands on it. hope you enjoy the episode. Joining me now is former Special Forces soldier, SAS Who Dears Winstar, number one best-selling author, and successful business owner, Ollie Ollerton. Have I missed anything? Yeah, loads. Absolutely loads, but that's, <laughs> that's a good start. <laughs> you, you failed your first attempt at Special Forces, didn't you? Yeah, I don't like to call it a fail. I like to call it a little altercation. But uh, Involving <laughs> yes, a I farmer? Involving a farmer, yeah. I've called Glenn. I know him well. I still remember him. But um, yeah, it was the final phase. I kind of, you know, I, 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 250 people. I was I was one of five that was on that, you know, got to that stage. I was two days to the end. It was like, ah, oh, this is just, I'm just, I'm just marking time now. I'm, I'm in, I'm, I'm a special forces soldier. You know, I'd, I'd already started dreaming of my life, how it's going to be from next week on. And then we, uh, we're out there and, um, you have to go like the escape innovation is cross across the, we, we did it in Wales. Sometimes they do it in Scotland, but we, you know, you have to travel, um, through the night you, you're in world war one fatigue. So you've got no, no luxuries, a little survival compass, a sketch map, uh, and you're given sporadic bits of moldy sandwiches. Um, that's probably the best yeah. way to explain it. Um, and you have to move at night and then sleep in the day. You never sleep in the day because you're that shitting yourself because of the possibility of being captured. There's dogs after you. There's a hunter force of like paratroopers or whatever force, you know, whatever military they're using at the time that just want to catch a potential special forces recruit and torture them for a little bit. You know, so the the is, you know, when you say it's not real, it has a very real and mental sort of uh, creates a lot of anxiety. Um, so basically, you know, there's three rules, um, general rules, and that is no civilians contact, no um, no uh, use of uh, buildings, and no um, use of any vehicles. Uh, now. One thing about Special Forces Soldier, and this sort of bleeds into the whole ethos and, and modus operandi of their life, and the reason that Special Forces are so successful is the fact that they will stop at nothing to get the job done, whatever it takes. So what I'm saying there is when it comes to rules, rules are there to be broken. Right. And that's fact. So, you know, you get rules, and it, it, the rules are really there to give you ideas. And um, so everyone does cheat. Um, and um, it's, it's a case of getting away with it, you know, which is which, which creates a bit of realism. Now, we uh, we ended up getting a lift off a farmer. And like I say, his name was Glenn. He was heavily consumed with alcohol at the time. He wasn't driving, which is a good thing. His handyman was driving the vehicle. And when we got to the um, got to the location near the, the, the next rendezvous point, which, which was at night, it was on a really steep hill. 
so and we we tried to get out the back of the vehicle and it wasn't opening and the helicopters were all over you could see the spotlights coming down all over the countryside you could hear dogs and we're thinking shit if we get caught in here we're done and um we're like glenn glenn we can't get out and he then starts to get out of the car and as he did that we heard this horrendous thud we didn't know what had happened and at that point one of the lads just booted the back doors of this van open they flew open these barn doors of this uh this this farmer's vehicle and we just legged it all of us legged it into the woods and we're like in the woods like oh my god that was hideous we got you know we're good we're good and we we then headed off into the night anyway the next day when we went to meet the agent rv you know the agent rvs they create are strangers so you've not you know they try and make it as realistic as possible but when we got there it was someone we knew and that was the training team the ds uh directing staff and they were like come with us and then they took us off and we had a field interrogation and they asked us you know what have you been doing the last 24 hours and it was like oh you know doing the old survival stuff and and they were like oh yeah so uh you don't know glenn i was like "Mm, no and they anyway they named mate they named the dog the cat all the cows his wife everything the whole lot so it's like they were like oh my god it's like look if you don't Tell us the truth. It's not going to go well for you. So anyway, we told the truth. Look, this has happened. And straight away, they were like, right, your your journey's finished. Oh. It's over. That's it. And what had happened is the farmer had got out of the car drunk, didn't negotiate the slope, fell over, smashed his head open. And then when he was in hospital, he told the police that he'd been beaten up by the SAS. Ah, Glenn. <laughs> so Glenn, if you're listening to that. No hard feelings because you've created a good chapter in my book. Um, but at the time, I wanted, wanted to kill him. <laughs> oh, my goodness. You got a second go at this selection, though, didn't you? That wasn't the end of it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you you, you get two chances. Um, so, yeah, when I went back the second time, I mean, that was a hard pill to swallow. You know, I'd actually only I only did special forces selection because I was I was I wanted to be either civilian because I wasn't happy with being in the military at that time. You know, it just wasn't enough for me. So I wanted to be a civilian or special forces, you know, it's, it's one, one or the other. And when it came to sort of failing that journey, and it's a long journey and a very tough one. When it How came long to, is the journey? Well, it's six months actually on course. Right. So six months of constant assessment. But, you know, there's the build up to it and everything. And, you know, it's 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 about a nine month process with your training and stuff like that. Mm. Some people a lot longer, some people less, but you know, it's a long old process. And, and for me to negotiate going back to that world, you know, going back to doing it all over again, was just like, you know, there was the fire that was burning of passion and determination was merely a, a load of embers. Mm. So it really took a lot of, a uh, lot of determination, a lot of soul searching and um, a lot of sort of, understanding purpose to um to really try and get that fire going again but once i did i got back on selection it was all going seemingly well and then um very shortly on in the brecon beacons on the first in the first week first two weeks in the brecon beacons absolute thrash carrying all kinds of weights up and down mountains um i uh i slipped on a slate going down to the final rv racing someone else with a heavy pack on my back and my, my, my right foot actually inverted 45 degrees, 90 oh, degrees, sorry. Shit. And I could feel all the tendons snapping on the side and it was like, oh my, I couldn't believe it. Straight away flashing in my head, oh my God, that, that's it, my journey's over. And I got down to the bottom, took my boot off. I could actually see the DS, you know, the training team just going around each other. They, they were doing the chopped neck sign, which means 
he's 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 off he's finished and i just sat there thinking this i'm not coming back you know what i mean it was it was now or never for me i thought i'm not coming back if i fail i fail and that's it training the, the officer had me in that night he said look i want to i want to take you off the course i want to give you a medical withdrawal because if they did that it would have meant that i could come back if i failed a march that would be my journey ever going for the special forces it would have been over and I stood there and it, it nearly got into an argument with him because he was like, you're an idiot. You're going to fail. Um, you know, but if that's what you want, then so be it. And um, I walked out of the office that day. But like I say, for me, it was like the, the thought of going back, back to my unit and waiting another six months. Nah, that wasn't that wasn't going to happen. So it's mm-hmm. now or never. So I got back out and I basically... I strapped my foot up. I took so much brief and I pretty much floated over the Brecon beacons. <laughs> <laughs> but, but yeah, in all honesty, I was in tears, mate. I, I was doing the Brecon beacons. There's, there's one called in the Elam Valley, one of the marches you're doing. It's called Baby's Heads because the like the, the terrain is so damp and uh, and um, you know swampy that these big baby's heads and it's like your foot is doing all your feet are doing all kinds of maneuvers to get over it and i was absolutely in tears and uh but i managed to make the times and um you know through the tears and everything and the broofing and the strapping up i managed to do it and and beat uh beat all the the pain cut off the pain and just smashed it that's amazing then you had a you still had to go through the um escaping exercise again didn't you but you're a little bit more prepared this time yeah, I just made sure I didn't get caught cheating. <laughs> <laughs> so, so how did you do that? Because you took a bit of cash on cash with you this time, didn't you? Yeah, no, I swallowed a load of cash in condoms and um, no big coins. There was no 50 pence pieces in there. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, no, there was uh, all the lads in the team. You know, we all got, I think we had like 20 quid each. So back in 1993, 1994, that was, that was a fair bit of cash, you know, for, for food anyway. So we all... Um, we all swallowed that and a couple of days later when we're actually in the field on the run because they do they they do a cavity search before you leave as well so they check to see if you've got anything hidden up in every crevice every uh every orifice should i say and uh yeah um anyway without going into too much detail about that um yeah it came out so we all had about 80 quid and um we'd, we'd managed to hide up in this rent this the cottage that was being renovated in in the hills in in, in wales and we thought right we've got this cash um I'm, i managed to find all these clothes that from the from the workers that had been there so i, I got like this husqvarna you know like 70s um bomber jacket on and took all my military clothes off and everything got all the money together and i i was the one that said yeah i'll go into the local town so i went into local town managed to get a lift down there by you know i got a um hitchhike down there and i walked into this shop can remember i'm going around i'm like it was like a dream it's like i just a trolley just throw you imagine you haven't eaten for days and i was just throwing every 80 quids worth of like mars bars and everything i like two massive bags and i'm paying for it and and the shop owner is like giving me the wink you know because the the welsh think they're the resistance you know it's like they're told to like dob us in if they ever see us but they they do exactly the opposite and they're like giving us the wink at the counter and then all of a sudden i'm at the counter i'm like just paid go to pick up the bags and i look outside and there's a troop carrier full of the hunter force Jesus. <laughs> they stopped at the shop and i'm like oh my god i'm like so i'm like getting these bags got my head down and all these soldiers start coming in the door you know they're the hunter force that were looking for us and i'm like walking past them I'm like all right buddy 
<laughs> trying, to, trying to put on my Welsh accent, <laughs> and they're looking at me, you know, thinking, "Oh, dumb civilian," you know, like or whatever they were thinking, and just give me the hard look. And I had to walk past, and I had to walk past two troop carriers, and all with all these squaddies on the back, staring out the back, at, looking at me, you know. And uh, I was thinking, "Oh my God, I hope they haven't got any kind of photo fits or anything like that." But and that was it. Yeah, I managed to escape and uh, got a, and we had a, a big feast and 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 then the, the soldiers actually start walking up the road all with their military stuff, all their guns and everything, and the hunter force up the same road where the cottage was. So we then double shit ourselves. We were caught in this house, and I decide because I'm in all the civilian clothing. The contractors had turned up then who were building the house, and I was outside digging cement with them. <laughs> and as the boys walked past, I was like, "All right, mate." <laughs> <laughs> and then we must have been thinking, oh, there's that idiot from the shop. <laughs> <laughs> but they went on by and the lads were safe in the house. But the thing is, mate, you know, when I look at it, that's what, that's what you do for real, right? You exactly. Know I mean? You don't follow rules and say, oh, I can't do that. You know, you've, you've got to bend the rules and do whatever it takes to reach, you, reach your goal. So, and then, and then, you get, then you get into your first mission. Is this, the, is this the one that kind of got in the way of you going on a piss up? Yeah. Well, every mission got in the way of me going on a piss up because that's all I was interested in, to be quite honest. In my, uh... well, we'll get more into that because that, that's that's a big part of your your sort of journey to where you are now. But um, we'll, we'll get into that shortly. But yeah, the 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 first mission. Yeah, the first mission, and this was gold to me because it was like when you finish selection, it's almost an anticlimax. It really, you know, it's like wow, well, okay, and you expect. I don't know what you expect, but you expect to like be, you know, some seen out of Hollywood you expect to be jumping out of helicopters and rescuing you know um, hostages and stuff like that and you get there and it's like quite it is a real anticlimax and then also the fact that you feel like you know you you're the lowest step on the ladder you know you you go to to the lowest step on the ladder but it was it was a fright I was on the I spent most of my tours um, on the the uh, counter-terrorism team uh, and that for me was where I wanted to be because I was absolutely infatuated with the 1980 uh hostage release um or you know on the iranian embassy mm. that everyone saw on tv so that for me i was like i wanted that all over again i had an unhealthy appetite for war swinging um, into windows yeah swinging you. into windows in black with you know with short little machine guns and yeah and then you know oh that was just a dream for me so and that's what the counter-terrorism team was so anyway we used to have a pager a pager used to like I don't know if everyone knows what a pager is these days, but it's just like a little device that comes up with a code to call a number or to, to do whatever. Basically a text message back in the day, isn't it? Yeah, it's a little text message machine, yeah. isn't it? It just clips onto your belt. And we used to get issued one of those as part of our kit, and we were on 30 minutes notice to move. So if we got the, the code that came through on our pages, we would then have to make our way back to camp within 30 minutes and be ready to go. Our kit was all ready to go for any kind of anti-terrorism incident wherever you know in the uk mainly for that sort of notice so anyway it was a friday night it always seemed to be a friday night i don't know it's like i don't know why they can't work a nine to five and be respectable but <laughs> it was a, it was like uh, i just got away and i was i was supposed to be going um and uh, uh to a party that weekend i was supposed to be uh i like my music and i like DJing and stuff like that, and I'd actually managed to get a gig at this private party where these these two sisters were absolutely gorgeous blonde girls from the local town. And I was like, I got in there to be their DJ, and it was like, so anyway, I was like on my way out of camp. It was the best weekend up and coming. I couldn't wait for it. 
and then my pager went off and I was like, oh, this is probably just a test. You know, we had, we had a few of them. Looked at the code on the pager and it's not a test. And there was, it was mixed emotions. I was like, straight away I thought, oh, I can't do the party, but I didn't really care about that because it was like the first mission. It's everything I joined for. It was like, this is it. You know, this is my, my chance to, this is my real introduction to the special forces. Went back to camp uh, where we had briefings, straight into a briefing room about what was going on. We were then grabbed our kit we straight onto helicopters up to the target area and then we then had further further briefings and usually when you do this stuff you're in a uh, holding area waiting for the job to go down and we'd done this previously and you're like out for two weeks just waiting you either you know you're waiting in a hangar or you're waiting on a ship but you can and then sometimes a lot of times the jobs just get called off they don't go ahead and this time i just thought god i phoned i phoned the girls up and i said look i'm not going to be coming this weekend i've got a job on and i thought i'd be away for, for a couple of weeks anyway this was the first job of its kind and 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 the last one as well uh it happened straight away we got on the helicopters waited till you know had a final briefing and then we went out and um there was there was ships coming into uk waters a ship coming into uk uk waters that we uh i was a helicopter team Abseiled onto the bridge at the dark of night, middle of the night, boats coming up on the back and more teams coming up over the back. And uh, we hit the target, took the ship down. And then as it came up to first light, you know, helicopters came in and um, um, we did our extraction. I can always remember looking into the, you know, as the sun was coming up and we're flying off into the sky after after doing this mission, you know, all in black, all in, you know, respirators on, all, all the things, the typical, stereotypical special forces um soldier kind of image that you can think of it was that and uh, i can remember looking at the sunset in the morning thinking oh my god and that was my transition from being just a normal soldier into the special forces world but the good news was i was back in bournemouth where we were based we were based in pool i was back and i was like on the way back i was like i'm coming back i'm coming back i'm gonna be at the party it was it was it was hilarious so i managed to get back no sleep whatsoever and then um and then ended up DJing at this party and I had the best night. My, yeah, it was great. So it was just like, what a weekend, you know, and you couldn't even, you couldn't even tell people what you'd been doing, but um, it was just a, just a big smile on your face thinking, Oh my God, this is like a surreal world. And then we mentioned it before, because then with all the downtime, the drinking started to get a little bit out of control for you. And there's a story about you at a wedding <laughs> that I want you to tell me. Oh God! I thought you were going to tell me the story then, which would, make, would have made it easier. But um, yeah, it was um, the drinking for me. I mean, this was this was a little bit more when I left. It became a real problem because the thing is, when you're actually serving, and when because we were so busy training or doing operations, you you know, there's a there's a lot of periods of hard work, hard work, and there. But you play hard, and when you take that ethos and that habit, should have called it, into the civilian world because you're not working so you're not so immersed in work or certainly for me then the 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 latter was more apparent than the former so i ended up then you know a lot of the the free time um i did you know just almost like to i felt i felt sort of it was just like life was dull and so i ended up drinking a hell of a lot and and this was actually after i left and it was my brother's wedding and my brother's in the Royal Navy as a helicopter. He was in the Royal Navy as a helicopter pilot. So we were up in Scotland and, you know, he had all his Navy mates there. And um, we there's a, there's a renowned tradition, especially in the Royal Marines, more so in the Royal Marines. I was part of the Royal Marines before the Special Boat Service or the Special Forces. 
And um, there's, a, there's an age-old tradition that if someone shouts naked bar, you must, without emotion or any kind of backlash, you must absolutely get naked. And it was a very serious affair. You know, you had to like just, you know, you couldn't argue with it. You had to take all your clothes off and then just carry on non-emotional so to speak so you could be in any bar people would just get naked drop the clothes on the floor then pick their beer glasses back up and just start drinking again you know and just carry on the same conversations like it was normal so anyway you had all these uh and the navy's tried to adopt that you know but it's never been quite as committed as the royal marines uh, uh <laughs> do it so anyway i could see all the you know there was guys at my brother's wedding and uh you know they had their shirts off and i could hear them shouting oh naked bar naked bar i was like ah, that is pathetic that is not naked bar. So anyway, I walk into the, you know, and I'm like that. I just all the clothes come off. You know, I had to, I had to, I had to uphold the tradition. And there I am, stood there totally naked, and uh, I was quite proud of that. Um, I don't think anyone else was. I don't think my brother was that uh, impressed, and certainly his his wife. Yeah, it was his wife by then was a, was a little bit disturbed, but not half as disturbed. Actually, it was. Let's let's crack on to the because a lot of that was a blur, but it was a heavy, heavy night. And uh, the next morning, we we all got up, and it was up in Scotland, and everyone was checking out. I can remember going. I was thinking, you know, I was still giddy from the night before, you know, still still got the the toxin in me of the 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 the, the alcohol, and I was like still giddy and still laughing. I was thinking, why is everyone so boring? Why is everyone not? No one's having a laugh. And I was like, and I walked up, and I was just about to pay, and I saw my um, my brother-in-law, my my sister's husband, and I said. Uh, I said, well, why is everyone so miserable? What's going on? He says, miserable? He says, can you not remember last night? And I said, well, what are you talking about? He says, Matt, the last time I saw you, you had your cock in your auntie's ear. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, I think I had a bit of a flashback at that moment. And I was like, oh, my God. And then it all made sense, you know, why no one was actually talking to me. But um, I made my way out of there very quickly. I don't oh think I even paid the bill. I just waited for it to auto, uh, you know, take it off my card. But yeah, it was, it's a very, well, not not my proudest family moment, but certainly yeah, topic for the conversation. Well, oh, it's a great story. It's a great story. Not your proudest moment, but it's a great story nonetheless. <laughs> <laughs> and then, and then with um, going back to the military stuff, like you, you start training um, overseas military as well when you're in the special forces, don't you? Yeah. And yeah. And. And you made the headlines for all the wrong reasons, didn't you? Yeah, we were training. We used to spend a lot of time in Norway doing Arctic warfare. And um, I can remember we sort of um, we, were play, we were based up north with the, this, this, the SBS. And that's where we we're doing all our Arctic warfare training. But, you know, down south, closer to the coast. Um, was where we would do our diving package. Obviously, a lot of time, a lot of stuff we did was was a lot of time we spent underwater combat with combat swimmers, combat divers, and um, so there was a diving package. There was a diving package down south, and um, so we had to go down there, you know, for for um, a few days to do the diving package before we came back up. And I can remember going down there. It was it was, it was Feb the fourteenth. I can remember it so well because it was Valentine's Day. And um, we got that down there on the night, and it was it was always a good night out in Norway. And um, we got down there, and there was like all I wanted to do is just get out on the lash. You know, it's just like come on, we're in foreign lands. Let's let's. And no one was going out. Everyone's like, oh, no, we've got the diving tomorrow. You know, and I was like, forget the diving. I said, I was like, look, it's February the fourteenth. It's Valentine's Day. All your girlfriends are probably out with another bloke, and you're not going to come out and and have a bit of a lap on the town. And no one would do it. I, I managed to sat, get, you know. 
a couple of lads together and we managed got we got into town and and straight away we sat in a chair in the club i can remember it, girls straight to us anyway cut a long story short i woke up in a in a uh, in a girl's apartment um and you know i looked at my watch and it was like eight o'clock now the dive brief was at eight o'clock in the morning and i was like oh my god I am in the shit. I'm properly in the shit. But the thing is, I thought, well, look, I'm in the shit. I'm going to get in trouble anyway. I may as well just make the most of it. So, you know, I rolled over and um, kissed and cuddled and uh, and made the most of it. And uh, <laughs> and I thought, you know, I've, you know, I'm going to get in the shit anyway. So, and then uh, just as I was relaxing, you know, lay there, uh, contemplating life, and uh, there was a knock on the door, and. Uh, I thought, you know, even the girl that was with me was looked quite confused. And she went to the door. She came back. She said, it is your friend. It's not my best Norwegian accent. It's pretty close. I'm like, it's pretty close. what do you mean, my friend? And how do they know that I'm in this house? I just couldn't work it all out. Anyway, I got to the door. It was the lads, you know, the, some lads from uh, the support staff for the SBS. And they were like that. They were like, Ollie, you are in the shit, mate. And I was like, oh, I know I am. But how, how have you found where I am? And anyway, I got in the car with him and went and they're telling me, he said, like, he said, because you're missing, he said, we, you know, um, they, they got in touch with the local club that you went to and they, the police managed to get them to the CCTV and see the girls that you were with. There was three of us. I was the only one that never made it back. And um, they knew exactly who your girl, the girl that you went with was. She's a local hairdresser. So uh, we know exactly where to go. I was like, oh, Jesus Christ. Uh, anyway, I got back and I got an extreme bollocking. But, you know, the guy that was uh, bollocking me said, look, you know, after you bollocked me, right, that's the last that is said about this. You do, you know, do the dive packing, blah, blah, blah. This is not going to go back up to HQ when you get back. Just be known. Do not. This is your last chance, Ollie. So I was like, OK, OK. Cracked on with the dive package. I was like, that, that was put to bed, literally. <laughs> and um, and anyway, so uh, we then three days later, we go back to the HQ and, uh, you know, everyone's in this communal dining area and all the head shed. We call the head shed all the hierarchy, all the officers, all the, 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 the troop commanders and everything are on the table next to me. And we had this sort of um, uh, local liaison officer from the Nor Norwegian Army, Norwegian Special Forces. And anyway, I can remember, honestly, I can still remember seeing it now. I'm, I'm there just eating my food and everything. I'm with the table with the lads. And I'm right next to the head shed's table. And he, he walks in with the newspaper under his arm. And he walks over to the table and he's like, I can hear him. I still don't know what, you know, I didn't think anything of it. And he's like, uh, I see you have been in the newspapers again. <laughs> and it, it, was, it was really big news, you know, the special forces in town. So we were, it was big news because we had all the big uh, Elric, the big speedboats, everything, the mini subs, the whole lot. So it was big news as being in town. Yeah. Anyway, he gets this paper, big, almost like the Telegraph. He opens it up and he starts reading. And everyone, so I, you know, I can hear it in the, my peripheral. And he's he says, um, and he's talking about, yes, the SBS are in town and it's big and they're down here. And he said, but, and, and then it goes on to, and, I, and then suddenly my ears perk up. But last night there was an emergency and helicopters were scrambled because one of the commandos went missing. Oh, no. <laughs> One of the commandos went missing and it goes on and on about the SBS being in town and all this. And, but then the last sentence, you know, but he was later found tucked up in bed with a Norwegian hairdresser. 
And honestly, my head like falls into my dinner. And I'm like, oh my God. You know, they, they were trying to keep it secret. They said they wouldn't say anything about it. And it's all across the newspapers in uh, in, in the um, Norwegian Times, if you want to. I'd love to get that newspaper advert. But honestly, the head shed found it that funny that it was in the papers. It actually went in my favor. And they, they were just shaking their heads. And they, uh, you know, I got off with it. Oh, I got off goodness. with so much. I didn't get away. I, I, I am the typical person that fell in shit and came smelling the roses every time but it was it was just it was a funny moment mate funny oh that's ridiculous so you you get that you get the call to go on the circuit which is what a lot of ex-special forces ex-military people do is they go and work in, in security yeah. overseas uh, you head to iraq uh, where the next break point in your life happens yeah the opportunity of a job in iraq you know saddam uh, had just fallen or Saddam, you know, if you imagine the statue in Ferdos Square had come down, the Americans had liberated Team America had gone in there, you know, thought it was the end of the war. As we know, it was the start of the war. And um, for me, you know, that the money over there was just ridiculous. It was like 13,000 quid a month tax free. You know, you didn't get taxed because you're in a war zone. I mean, back in 2003, that was phenomenal money. It still is today. You know, anyway, so I got back to Iraq and then Within a very short space of time, I was on the road to uh, to um, from Jordan to Baghdad, and um, you know we were actually bringing in the ABC bureau chief, who was who was coming into Iraq at that point because the security level had gone down. So they so they thought, and one of his main jobs was to assess the need for security. So our jobs were very quickly about to end. Now I'm a big dreamer and I'm a big visualizer. Always have been, always will be, and. But I never knew that stuff kind of worked, but I'm, I'm, doesn't, it, it never stopped me from doing it. So really, I thought about, you know, he's coming in to probably end our jobs. You know, we're very expensive. Security is not something that makes a company any money. It's something that um, is a cost to a business unless it's actually, you know, it's, its value is only tested once it is tested. Uh, or its value is only, uh, is only shown once it once it's tested so uh i was thinking all the way along the only thing how can we stop you know the only thing that's going to stop this contract from not being terminated is we need to get attacked so basically in my head i was thinking of all these scenarios of the perfect scenario for us to get attacked now and i just thought look if we've got the abc bureau chief in the car if we get attacked and we get these guys out of it you know, we get them safely back to Baghdad. There's no way he's going to terminate the contract. So I sat there for hours. It was a 12-hour journey on the way to pick him up. And I was just dreaming about that perfect scenario. And I went into so much intimate detail. You know, I was that invested in that, um, you know, in that visualization. I was that invested. So anyway, we, pick, we picked him up the next day. And then we're driving back between Ramadi and Fallujah, which was the hot spot at that time. And that's where the militia attacked us. And when the attack went in, straight away in my head, I went, oh, my. It was like deja vu. It was absolutely to the letter, to the dot was on every eye. It was exactly as I'd envisioned it. It was almost like a carbon copy. It was deja vu. And it was just so phenomenal an experience. And, um, you know, I managed to, you know, I'm driving a car without going to, into the long story, I'm driving a car, 140 k's an hour, the militia on on my bumper, and I had to basically swerve the vehicle into the center lane. I had another guy behind me with an AK-47. I had a small submachine gun like this, which is called an MP5 Kurtz, and I basically, they would start firing, you know, the AK-47s over the vehicle. They were going to start shooting at us. My immediate reaction was to swerve out, 
box them in on my left-hand side, wait till they got alongside and then take appropriate action. And I did exactly that. I boxed them in. They foolishly fell for the trap. And um, as soon as they came up alongside, I mean, I popped my, I'm doing 140 Ks an hour, you know, in a soft skin vehicle, which means bullets come inside. Um, and as soon as they got up alongside, I managed to whack the MP5 Kurtz on my arm as I'm driving. And, the, and basically the first round just went through our windows, cleared the windows and, and, and put a burst into the, into the vehicle, which stopped them in their tracks. And then we made our way back to Baghdad. Um, and there again, you know, I got to Baghdad and, and there it was it was like phenomenal as if it wasn't weird enough you know i'd also visualized that we got back and there was a champagne reception a hero's welcome and exactly that thing happened the gates opened there was a champagne hero's welcome for us i got out the car the car door opened i could hear this all this like almost like change out your pocket falling on the floor and i looked down it was all the glass and all the empty shell cases from the bullets and as i looked up there was someone there thrust a glass of champagne in my hand and I was like, oh, my God, I was tingling with it like this. My mate behind anyway, because I told him my story the night before, was looking at me like I'm some kind of witch. And then as soon as I did that, the shortly after, I was called up into the office and they were like, I thought, you know, there's two things that can happen in that, in that, at that time. And that's you can absolutely, you know, the world can come down on you for not, for, for, um, not taking appropriate action. But they were there and they were like, oh, we saw the whole thing go down. You saved our lives absolutely brilliant your actions we commend you for your actions and then they slid a piece of paper across the table and we signed a contract for another two years and it was like it was almost like a message from the universe saying we need to show this idiot that this power of visualization and positive thought works and we need to make it a harsh lesson a lot of people will say oh that's you know it's all voodoo and all this it's not you know what i mean if anyone says that visualization doesn't work then as far as i'm concerned they're missing out and it's something that i push and push and push now and I've, everything i've done since then is involved me visualizing the outcome, getting emotionally attached to how it benefits me, put myself in the zone as if I've already done it, and it happens. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. And then you went and worked for an oil company and you were staying in Saddam Hussein's old villas, weren't you? Yeah, that was, that was it. Well, initially when I worked for the oil company, I... Um, I wasn't. Um, the first job, I mean, the first job when I got to Iraq was was working for ABC News. I was running uh, a, a security team for them. And then I was working for an oil company um, uh, and I was taking their bosses into Iraq. Um, and that's actually where I met my um, my Australian girlfriend. And that's how I ended up in Australia. That's another story. Um, 
And then, I mean, these jobs were quite quick. So the first sort of tour out in Iraq was working for ABC. The second one was working for an oil company. And then the, the third time I went back, we, um, you know, some friends of ours had set up a company that we used to work, you know, we all used to serve together. So, so they set up a company, a security company, and we all started working together out there. We turned up in Iraq with absolutely nothing. Um, a lot of companies were working inside the green zone. That's the safety sort of area within uh, where Saddam's uh, palace was that the Americans occupied. But we, because of the nature of our operations, we actually put ourselves actually in the red zone where the Iraqis were. Um, all of our projects were pro-Iraqi, pro and we employed, so we, we went into Baghdad with nothing. And basically, before I knew it, we had a, an army of 2,000 Iraqis, fully weaponized. We were living in um, Saddam Hussein's old villas. Oh, he's, he's not Saddam Hussein's, but his um, sort of high-up henchmen, their villas. So we had a number of those villas, and we also had... Um, a number of vehicles that were Saddam Hussein's security team's vehicles or his vehicles, all our armored Mercedes that used to be Saddam's that we were actually renting out as a as a, as high cars. You guys were gangsters. Well, <laughs> <laughs> so you, you've got a you've got a shitload of cash. You've got Saddam Hussein's villas. You've got Saddam Hussein's limos. Are you gangsters? Yeah. It was a pretty bizarre, it was a bizarre time. I mean, I, I talk about it in my book, but this was, you know, when I first got out there, I mean, I, I was I was fresh into that kind of contract. It was a Wild West environment, you know, absolutely Wild West. I mean, it was just everyone was making a fortune. There was there was money everywhere. It was ridiculous. It was, um, and everyone, you know, like the local people there, when people are in a war zone, you know, they, they don't know when it's going to end. So they are just trying to, scrape as much money as or you know as much money and 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 um, valuable things together they don't know when the next payday is coming from they don't know when where their life's going so they're just scrabbling for everything food money valuables the whole lot so it's a real crazy world and we went to a villa we used to have like a friday was the day off or is the day off in the middle east and i always remember we had because we worked we had these Jordanian partners that used to help us supply or, or that we used to work with, they used to basically help us recruit all the Iraqis. And um, they, we used to have a, the first time I went to one, you know, we used to have a client party every Thursday night. So that was party night because Friday was the day off. I can remember the first party I went to, it was absolutely crazy. You know, the last time I was in Iraq was as a kid in the Royal Marines, you know, and I was 19 years old. You know, so I went, last time I was in Iraq was that. The next time I'm out there, I've, you know, I'm a, uh, I'm a mercenary, <laughs> you know. And, it, and you know, the, I was going over as a kid to, because of, you know, to, to fight in Operation Desert Storm. And now I'm actually sat in one of Saddam Hussein's villas for this party, you know. So, the, it's, you know, the lads were like, right, we're having a party. Thursday, Thursday night's great. Um, and they, they said, come along to this other villa. So I got there, the clients were all there as well, all the Western clients that we were looking after and helping run the project. And I can remember sat there, I, I used to, I turned over, all our team turned up. We had like um, a bulletproof vest on, shirt over the top. We had like a small, you know, like Glock pistol hidden away, um, you know, submachine guns and everything all, all concealed. Um, so I came in and like, 
you know, just relax. So take off your bulletproof vest, put it under the chair, you know, get yourself a drink. And uh, I'm like, so, you know, this is the first time I, I didn't know what really went on. Anyway, next thing there's a like knock on the door and all the lads that, you know, that have been to these parties before started smiling. And I was like, shit, what's going on? And uh, knock at the door, and then all of a sudden, I was like, I reached straight away. I was like, shit. And I reached down to get my weapon, and like one of the lads just grabbed my arm and went, no, 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 leave it. And what was coming through the door was a load of uh, people in burkas, you know, just with the slits, black burkas on. And I was like, what the, what the fuck is going on? And they came in, and I counted, there was 13. 13 walked in and I'm just sat there like, oh my God, what's going on? They walked into the center of the room. There's no, this is nowhere to, half my story, so I have to pinch myself. But they walked into the room and they stood there and it almost like synchronized swimmers. The burkas came off and all these girls were there in European porn gear. And these were like Muslim prostitutes that used to work for, or used to be Saddam Hussein's prostitutes. Oh my goodness. So, and then they basically were there for the night to, to service our clients. And it was, it was just mental, mate. It was just mental. I was just like, you know, and there's like people smoking weed. And I'm just sat there going, you know, that whole thinking, 19 years old, Operation Desert Storm. Now I'm sat here, long hair and a beard. And I've got like, I'm watching these. These girls come in with burkas, then turn into European porn stars. There's people smoking weed. There's cocaine, everything. Anyway, it was, it was a crazy night, crazy night, you know. And I was obviously on guard all the way, all the way through the night. Not, not, not stood there on guard, but I was. I had to keep my wits about me. Then heard in the morning that half these uh, Western guys that we were protecting, you know, the, the girls had like made sure they'd had enough to drink and probably put a few other things in their drinks as well. And um, they'd fleeced the whole villa. So the safe, there was a safe that had been left open, open with loads, wads of money in. That had all gone. A Rolex watch had gone. All the food out the kitchen had been taken. Everything. <laughs> Burke is back on. See you later. Brilliant. Brilliant. Was there, there, there's a time when you were in those villas that you got attacked, wasn't there? Uh, there was a couple, a couple of times, but there was one significant time when, I mean, the, the, the main one, I mean, it happened on a daily basis, not on a daily basis, sorry, it happened very regularly. So, you know, and we kind of got complacent to it because we had the whole places encased with steel. So basically inside the villas, you know, and this is, this is what really affected you. You basically, you your self-imprisonment for six weeks. But you do go out and stuff, but, you know, you come back. And then whenever you hear the attack coming in, we had to run around the villa. You know, the, the first protocol was to, to slam all the steel across the windows, all across the doors, and prepare for the attack. You know, so a number of times we were attacked and, and the rounds went down. Sometimes it wasn't just our villa, it was one next door, etc., etc. But there was one time I was out there when I was actually remote from the villa. This was after, a, you know, tour, this was like the one last job. And that was the time when we were actually caught in a compound and the, the attack came in and we had a client and we basically um, got a full frontal attack on the villa and they came into the compound and we had a shootout with the, with the militia. And, um, and yeah, it was, it was touch and go whether we got out there and we did, we did, we managed to do sort of um, a maneuver. We managed to distract the militia and, and throw them off. And then we managed to escape out the, uh, the back of the compound into the cars and away. 
Uh, one of the guys got shot through the arm. But, um, yeah, I mean, there was hairy moments like that all the time. The thing is, and that's why I didn't think I was going to come back from Iraq. You know, when I was, when you're in the military, when you're in the special forces, you, you're invincible. You know what I mean? You're, you're ready for it. You're, you're like, you just know that you're waiting for that state of chaos because that's when you, you start going to flow. And that's when you really start operating. And, you know, you've got a team around you so well trained and so there's nothing like it. And I've never experienced anything like that again. But, you know, being there in Iraq, you know, you, you, you've got no support elements. You've just got a limited amount of ammunition. You know, when shit goes wrong, and it did quite often, um, you're left to your own devices. And that was a scary, scary place to be. I mean, we used to have... We used to carry, it was a policy, it was policy within our teams that we would <clears throat> make sure that we, um, you know, the, the insurance policies and stuff like that were pretty non-existent. There were stories of lads being, going back in wheelchairs and have no real insurance, you know, lads missing limbs and all kinds of stuff. And then, you know, no, no insurance, so to speak, to, to, to look after them for the rest of their lives. So... It was a policy that if it looked like we, if we were injured and it looked like we weren't, you know, we were going to end up in a wheelchair or be a burden, um, that we would shoot each other. And we used to carry around for that. Did, you, did um, that ever happen? No, 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 no. But you imagine the mental state of living in that yeah. and the constant being attacked. And and knowing, you know, the first time I got attacked in Iraq was the time when I was you know, on the, on the convoy. And then after that, I just thought, I'm not coming back from here. And I didn't really care after that. I, got to, I was so complacent by that point. That's why I was drinking every day. That's, you know, that, I wouldn't say that's why I was drinking every day. But, you know, I just, I thought every day was the last day. And, you know, I used to sleep at night in, in the villa. I had a Glock 9mm pistol underneath my pillow. And I had my hand on I used to sleep like that every night. And my AK-47 weapons all around the room. And I was just waiting for that door to come in. And it was, it was, it was, you know, after five years and five to six years of that, it was, it was no, you know, when I look now, I'm like, duh, you know, of course you're going to have mental health issues. Exactly. Was there ever a case where the people you were protecting, you didn't protect uh, enough or whether they sort of got taken or shot by the baddies? Yeah, there was one occasion. I mean, because we were pro-Iraqi, I mean, there was a number of times when we started, as soon as we did anything that was supporting the American military, you know, at one time, we, you know, as soon as that happened, we got warnings. And that was like, you know, at some point we had like an envelope chucked over the wall of the villa with a bullet in with our names on it, you know, and, and say, stop the work with the Americans, otherwise this will be coming this is coming for you. You know, that kind of stuff was, was happening. So, and every, we tried to be sneaky around it, but they, they knew every time we did something with the American military, they knew. But the thing is, because we had 2,000 people, it was also a double-edged sword because we had people that actually had connections with the militia. And we actually used that to our advantage. So when we were bringing logistics in from like Turkey or Jordan, you know, we used to basically have, a uh, symbol on our on our vehicles and we would pay off all the militia all the way down or the tribal chiefs for safe passage mm. and just assure them you know a lot of time you know we're putting in the mobile network into iraq we put electricity into the power grid back into iraq the pro-iraqi um projects and we were also 2000 iraqis we were like putting a lot of money back into their community 
So, you know, to go out there and, and so everything we were doing was, was, was proactive. But after all that time there, there was different militia groups and a lot going on. And also not just militia, but opportunists, because there was such a price on our heads that, you know, to get a Westerner um, and uh, we, we were high value targets. Um, but I mean, one time we had to, we had a, um, a hostage situation where some of our local guys that worked for us got captured. And um, we had, I can remember it was about, about six days where we were, we were ne negotiating to get these guys released. And um, at one point we could hear where they were and they, they, they were staying, they were cutting their heads off. It was horrendous. Um, and we managed to get the majority of our, our guys back. There wasn't many, but we heard other people in the background, not you know, who weren't so fortunate. And that was again, you know, all these things. It was, you, you, we got paid, we got paid a fortune, and but then you realise nothing's worth that kind of money. You know, it's like you get. I call it fool's gold now because you're just drawn. Anything that you're drawn to, like the cash, like that. There's a reason you get paid like that. You know what I mean? First of all, you're living in a war zone for that long. And then, there's, I mean, the chance of, of not coming back or coming back in a wheelchair, that's happened and happened. You know, it, it happened to one of our guys as well. You know, Brian, who was who was a, a, an amazing guy. He he uh, I mean, he was he, he went a bit native. He was he was actually seeing one of the girls, you know, like the one of the prostitutes. Um, right. And he, and he, sparked up a bit of relationship with her and I can remember he was actually one night we, we were due to fly out together the next day and um, you know I was going to meet him at the airport he actually turned up and said that night look you know, no one would argue with Brian he was ex-special forces he was like running his own routine you just didn't argue with him he was a he was a bit of a weapon and um, a bit longer than the tooth you didn't argue with him and uh, he'd been in Iraq you know pretty much lived in Iraq he didn't go home rarely rarely went home and he was very localised and he, he said one night, you know, I said, lads, can I go to a party in Dura tonight? Dura was really bad, part of Baghdad. And he, we're like, whoa, really? And he says, yeah, I need to just come and get some more weapons. So he came to the army, gave him some more weapons. And that's the last time we saw Brian. And then um, he didn't turn up at the airport the next day. And then when I was back in London, I got a phone call saying they, they'd found him. And the Americans had found him, actually, in the back street riddled with bullet, bullets and um, yeah he got to this party um, and as it turned out the local the police had, had raided this party and shot everyone shot all the Iraqis shot Brian Brian tried to escape there was he got a bullet in, the, in his leg and you could tell there was a struggle you know he is a knox of a guy he wouldn't have gone out without a fight but um, obviously he didn't make it um, and then what happened is one of the girl that was at the party there was his girlfriend um, she actually the bullet went in her head and it actually came out so it missed the brain and it came out and lodged came out the side of the other side so she survived she survived she was the only survivor so we had a witness and then basically we had enough we, we had this girl on witness protection in our villa in Baghdad and, um, you know, we were building this case to basically, um, you know, prosecute. Um, you know, it was, it was the police. Wow. It was, the Iraqi, it was the Iraqi police. And then all of a sudden we had to get, the heat was coming on to us because we had her at the villa. So we had to get rid of her to Jordan. So we got her out to Jordan to a safe house. 
And then, as if by magic, she disappeared. And then the whole case got dropped and we couldn't do anything. You know, there's no witness, no nothing. Holy shit. Mm. Then it's time for you to get off the circuit, I'm, I'm guessing. Yeah. Um, yeah. You finally left the circuit and you, you head to Thailand, which is a um, a new sort of – you're still working in security, but it's a, a different aim, a different goal, a different mindset, isn't it? Yeah, well, initially I didn't because it came out, and at that time I was like, I need to I, walking. You know, I, I'd seen through the the attraction of the money and working in war zones. Just I wanted to break away. The same thing is when I left the special forces in the first place. I wanted to break away and not not go back to that world or do anything in that world. The same thing happened at this stage. I was like, right, that's me. I'm I'm going to get into property. I'm going to sell property. I'm going to you know invest in property, and that was my new life. You know, and. and you know, the perception of that seemed amazing, but the reality of it was boring. And it started driving. And when I get bored, it's not good. Mm. You know, and at that time, especially when I was drinking, when I was, anytime I was bored, I would, I would drink. It was either work or drink, work or drink. And that's something that I inherited or was really amplified from my military days work or drink, work or drink. So, um, and at that stage, I was like, you know, I heard about, um, or, it, this was kind of weird, right? I say weird, but I don't call it weird anymore because I, I believe it's synchronicity. I was invited to a party one night at this period of boredom. A, a mate of mine, a best mate of mine, was actually, he'd moved to Australia just down the road. I worked with him in Iraq. It was crazy. His, his wife was a nurse and she got a grant to, to go and live over there or visa. And uh, I went to his party, a fancy dress party, and I was introduced to this guy. And immediately when I was introduced to this British guy that used to be in the military, I was like, I know you. I couldn't place him. I couldn't, I couldn't, I couldn't picture him. And I'm like, and then it came to me. I remembered his voice and I remembered him. And it was, he was one of the harshest. Oh, your interrogators. My interrogator, yeah. Ah, from SBS selection. Yeah. From SBS selection, yeah, SAS selection before I went to SBS. But SAS, so that harshing I talk about, he was one of the harshest. He was one of the crazy guys that was around me, like I was doing all the, you know, that I thought was absolutely mental. And I was like, oh my God, but you never, you never forget those voices. And um, I was like, and anyway, so we got on straight away. I was like, it was just a crazy coincidence. I don't believe in coincidences anymore. I believe it was a, uh, you know, it was it was meant to happen, and then he told me about something that was uh, he knew about that was happening in Thailand, Southeast Asia, more to the point. And um, he knew of a guy, an ex-commando that was running operations in in Southeast Asia. Uh, they were called the Grey Man, and they were rescuing rescuing kids from child prostitution and slavery. So asked me if I wanted to get involved, and immediately, you know, there's 1.6 million kids a year, and there's probably a lot more than that sold into that industry. And here's the thing that hit me the hardest is the fact that, you know, this, you know, I complained about not getting a, a hug off my dad and, and that kind of stuff when I was, when I was young, these kids are sold by their families. And I couldn't, I still can't get my head around that. I can't get my head around that knowing that you would sell your sibling, you know, your, your children um, and people, you know, and siblings and all sorts of, of relationships, but they would sell them into that industry knowing that what's going to happen to them. So, I mean, I wanted to, you know, it really compelled me. I wanted to have some, I wanted to change the destiny, help change the destiny of these kids' lives. So I ended up um, 
my relationship at that time fell apart and it was the it's the one thing I then needed to which was the you know reason to to drop everything in Australia and go over to Thailand and start conducting operations over there so I led it you know initially we went to try and film um, some uh, for for Vice to to film a documentary and that kind of fell apart because it was so corrupt trying to do anything um, with the anti-human trafficking department in Thailand so I then sort of left the TV crews and I went north and I went up to um, uh, to start working with an organisation called COSA, which is Children of Southeast Asia, and a, and a very interesting guy called Mickey Chusia, who was who founded the whole project there. And basically, we then, with two other guys, um, so the four of us all together, we then got into a pickup truck and we headed north to the Burmese border, uh, where we believed or knew, he knew, there was satellite camps where all these kids were being held. It was the, the hairiest time for me, or the, the hardest decision I had to make at that point was was not to take weapons. And, you know, it took a lot of thought. Of, you know, usually that that's that they were not the tools of my trade. And, but we had to, you know, all these routes going up through the border and across the, across the border and into the country were, were patrolled by the, by the cartels. And also, a lot of all the drugs were coming in that way. So, if you caught with weapons, you know, you were immediately assumed as DEA, um, and that would cause, you know, you probably wouldn't come back if, if that was a suspicion. So, we had to decide not to take the weapons, and it, that was a hard decision. So, anyway, we started conduct, conducting these operations and basically going into villages, uh, finding these kids, you know, they, and you had to catch these villages in between, um, you know, the cartels coming up who would recruit the kids, going to brothels, um, sweatshops, or onto the fishing boats. Um, and you had to basically intercept them in between these, the, the, the cartels coming up. Then we had to process them, get them out of there, get them to the orphanage where we would have donations coming in, or COSA had donations coming in. And, um, you know, we'd done one particular bust, and it was a large one. I mean, it's only 22 kids, but in the whole scheme of things, that is a lot in one bust. And it was the biggest charity I'd ever seen. Um, and I can remember that night after we'd um, sort of done the bust, we were, you know, we were just waiting there for the next day. So we would identify that camp, then we would then process the kids, and then there was a couple of day turnaround for us to to come and get the kids out of there. And then that night, the basically the cartel, you know, we just sat there, we were having a debrief, we were talking about the next day's operation, and um, and that's when the cartels, you know, it was, it was pitch black at night, and um, the cartels turned up. You know, and they'd obviously heard that there was people we were we were around, you know, doing what we we're doing, and uh, they were hunting us, and that was a pretty horrendous. I found myself separate, separated from anyone, and it's a bizarre thing that happens. You know, I ended up in just like this shack, and I'm hiding. And I'm actually there was they had torches, everything. And they're coming through this village. They, you know, the village owner is trying to say there's no one here, and at that point, I was hid behind a door, and all I had was a knife. Um, and I just, at that point, I thought, this is it. You know, they had AK-47s, and there was one guy that came actually, you know, he came up and he was looking around, and I was just, I was behind the door, I was sweating. I could feel the sweat dripping down my face, and kind of, you know, I could feel the salt in my mouth. I just thought, I was I was shitting myself, basically. I just thought, this is it, this is it. You know, I've got, I'm, I'm taking a knife to a gunfight. 
And, um, and at that point came through the door and the door almost hit me, you know, I was like close behind it. And honestly, he walked in the room and just as he's about to turn around, this is bizarre, his mobile phone goes off and immediately he gets his mobile phone and he looks at his mobile phone and he turns around and he, oh, I swear he almost looked at me. I thought he looked at me and my, my hand's gripping on my, on my knife, ready to go for it. And he, can't, he just drifted past. And I'm sure I was connected, but he obviously didn't see me. And then he just went and that was it. And then they, they, they drove off. And at that point, I rallied everyone together and we got out of there. But it was, it was hideous, mate. It was another point where I just thought, you know, I've, I've been close a few times and that, at that point. I just thought, my God, this is just horrendous. You know, I, all I had is like a knife. And it was, it, was, it, was, it was a hideous. It was one of those moments that, you know, it, it, it was only not, it was only a matter of, it was probably about 40 seconds long, but it's, it, in those moments, time goes very slow. I bet it does. But it does. Um, You're thinking it's the last moment of, of your life. Yeah. I think it's the end. It's going, yeah. yeah. Oh my goodness. So what happens to the girls once you once you get them over and then the, then the government like do they not look look into things for you? No, you you're kidding. I mean, it's the, I mean, this was that this was the, this was the downfall of the whole thing. You know, this is family. I just like to add as well. It's not just girls. It was, it was you know, it's, it's boys and girls. You know, there's no sort of um, preference or anything. You know, there's 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 the sex trade for both and also sweatshops. So, um, but basically, I mean, no, no one's interested. No one is interested because it's so high up the chain and the corruption is so high up. Um, and that's what really, that what happened for us and the reason why it all fell apart, because at that point I'd actually, for the first time in my life, I'd found something that I, I, I'd found my purpose. For the first time ever in my life, I, I, I felt complete. I thought, this is me. I'm going to be doing this for the rest of my life. And, um, and I invested everything, you know, I didn't get paid for that. I used all my money from Iraq to support that mission. I paid, you know, paid, it all came out of my pocket. And, um, you know, so there was no financial reward. But the, the one thing I was so, is the most amazing thing I'd ever done. I was so humble because the, the power of helping other people is so underrated. You know what I mean? I don't think, people just don't understand the power of helping other people. People find the most Instagram followers you know, even in corporate organizations, people in the same team are fighting against each other for, for notoriety or, you know, reward or recognition. You know, people have forgot the power of helping each other, you know, especially when there's no financial reward. You know, it's, it's done from, from from love, if you want to call it that. You know, it's done out of uh, compassion and empathy and, and all those things. And that is so, so powerful. And through doing that, that was the backbone for everything I do now. The whole thing, uh, the, the organization messed up in so much as, you know, they did a big no-no and that was they reported it to the press, you know, about the biggest bust the charity had done. And it went in the papers all over the world while we're still in country doing operations. So anyway, the US State Department got onto the Thai government, basically said, look, um, we give you millions of dollars to prevent this from happening, to support you. And a four-man team's gone in and done more than you've ever done. And um, immediately the Thai government obviously went on the uh, defence and said there's no such thing going on in our country. And this charity you talk of, He's a bogus charity, and these guys are just putting the money in their own pockets. Um, so there then was a manhunt for us. So it was a rest on site, and we had to escape. We were told, just get out, 
just go. And we had to escape across the Burmese border and then finally got out and back to back to Australia. And that is when my life started to really spiral out of control. Drink and Valium. Drink and Valium, yeah. And and that was it. You know, I, I'd invested everything in that. I thought that was my new life. I had no money, no nothing. I, I was left with my mental state was hideous. Um, and I just didn't see a way out. And, and, and many times at that point, you know, I, th- I did, you know, I thought about suicide well before that. But at that point, I was just thinking this is that is the easy. I just felt such a burden to everyone. I felt such a failure. And um, I wanted to end it all. You know, and they was, you know, heavily drinking, smoking, everything I could do, which was, which was a self-destructive pattern, you know, that I, I kind of, I wasn't, I wasn't a stranger to. Um, but, you know, at this point in time, I was just, I wasn't drinking for happiness. I was drinking to get drunk and was, t- and then Valium to combat the, the, uh, the anxiety that that caused. And then, you know, all kinds of stuff, drugs and everything. And it was just like a really bad place to be. Um, scraping together, I worked in the laundrette. You know, at one point I just couldn't get any other work. And it's not like the fact I couldn't get any other work. It's that I didn't have the mental capacity to, I couldn't even talk at that stage. You know, my mental state was so bad that I couldn't even hold a conversation together unless I'd had a few drinks. Mm. And, um, you know, I, I worked in this industrial massive laundrette, you know, putting these big massive sheets through these. I, mean, I just felt like, I'm not saying people that work in there are losers or anything like that, but for me, you know, I was just sat there thinking, how was I ever in the Special Forces? I, it, was, it was a slippery, slippery, horrible slope for me. So Ollie Ollerton's a bit of a shit show at the moment. Um, and then in your book, Battle Ready, you talk about how you eventually – locked yourself away in a cottage to sort yourself out? Well, the thing, the thing is at that point, I mean, even in Australia, I, one thing I said I'd never do is come back to the UK. I was just like, there was too much trauma, too much heartache, and it was just not somewhere that I ever thought I'd come back to. So, and at that point, you know, I managed, when I was in Australia, I managed to get, you know, it, I was by no means ready to leave that country or, or go anywhere. Um, and that was my slow call. That was my actual... Um, I started to appreciate and understand exactly where I was and how I needed to start changing things. And that was really a two-year climb, a steep climb out of that really dark and horrible black hole. Um, And that's one thing, you know, I teach a lot. You know, I talk about a lot because I find a lot of people struggling with mental health they keep themselves in that, I talk about repeat habit loops, they keep themselves dealing with that trauma and, and, and specifically focused on what got them into the trauma in the first place. And they're just on a repeat habit loop. They don't actually, you know, I, I, I talk about mental wealth and that's the moment you start to break free of that habit loop. And that is the whole thing that comes back to break point. Everything I talk about is that is when you have to, push into the discomfort initially for long-term gain. And really that is how you cast a rope outside of that black hole and then start pulling yourself out. So I managed to do that in Australia. And then I actually got a decent job in Australia in, in oil and gas. And that was a lifesaver. I split up with my girlfriend at that time. Um, finally split up with the, the girlfriend and um, I've got myself my own place and 
my life started to change. I still had issues and, um, you know, and I was dealing with those and, and, and those issues were, but I knew what the issues were and I knew, you know, I started to really focus on the issues as opposed to being, um, you know, allowing them just to, to, to be me. I, I, I alienated myself in some respect from those and I knew that I had to get rid of them for me to change my life. So, um, it was it was a long it was a long journey, but it was one that was um, it was gradual and it was improving all the time. But there were the issues there: still drinking too much, still a lot of confusion. And then I got this decent job, and it was amazing. I worked in oil gas. I had two like when I say it was amazing, I, I didn't do anything for two years. <laughs> mm. But I used to go into the office in Brisbane. I was locked in an office, and I thought it was perfect. And again, I was locked in a cage. And I just felt it was just horrible. And I, I, I mean, I was the fittest I've ever been in my life. I used to train three times a day and it was brilliant. I just don't know how it lasted for two years. But I'll tell you what, the one thing that I took from that is the fact that in a massive organization, that was the backbone. That gave me the image to start my company Breakpoint because I understood that, you know, not everything you can from the special forces you can take into a corporate organization you can't militarize, uh, militarize a corporate entity, but you can take some of the processes, uh, processes and the mindset and put that into their everyday structure, which will really improve the synchronicity, the teamwork, everything else. Because for two years, I didn't have one team meeting. And I just found that people within the organization were just running the payroll and, you know, just, just going through the motions. So that gave me the incentive at that point to start my company, Breakpoint. And then... It got towards the end of this contract and, you know, it was, are they going to renew it? There was people that, you know, and it, it was naturally rejecting me. Okay. And this was, this is what always happens in my life because I wanted in my head to start my company Breakpoint. My world that was around me at the time started rejecting me and pushing me out because the internal messaging for me was not to be there. Mm. But the thing is, while it's paying us money, a lot of people are stuck in that area aren't they they're there because someone's paying you and that is what you call your comfort zone because it's your comfort zone doesn't mean it's good for you mm. so i was in a comfort zone it's really hard to break out of that but once you start to set the intention that you want to be somewhere else it's like being in a relationship with someone okay you can't blag a relationship if you don't want to be be in it you know what i mean you can't if, if your internal messaging is i don't love that person and i um i want to be with someone else you can't put that act on for life with it, with it being seamless. You can't, you know what I mean? Yeah, I know exactly what you mean, yeah. I, I say that loosely. I don't feel like that at the moment. I don't, no, it's just clarified. Been Everyone's been there. Everyone's yeah. been there. But the thing is, you know, if you think, oh, well, you know, I'll, I'll just, you know, I'll keep it going because of whatever, the kids or this or whatever, you know, because I don't want to hurt that person, you will start to have arguments. You will start to have resentment. You will finally either have a very shit life together or someone will take the initiative to leave. And, and that, you know, that is, again, the typification or the ethos of breakpoint. It's breaking up with someone or breaking up a relationship, you know, a working relationship, whatever. You have to step into that short-term discomfort. It's horrible. But once you get on the other side, it's like toothache. It's like toothache. There's a lot of people in this world that will happily have the everyday pain, the low pain, you know, yeah. every when all they have to do is simply go and get the extraction, which is a lot more short-term pain, but they won't have that pain for the rest of their lives. But a lot of people aren't prepared to have the extraction. 
so that was that. That was it for me. And I, I, you know, at that point, it was rejecting me. I can remember I woke up, and it was it was at that time I really started to connect with my spirituality. I started to think about positive affirmations and all this kind of stuff. I started to meditate. I started to think about where I wanted to be as opposed to where I was. And I really started to engage my mindfulness, and it started working. You know, it's, it's once you start initially, you start doing that stuff, and you think, oh, this is this is ridiculous. It can't work. It's too simple. But once you start, you, you stop being judgmental, you start going through the process, it works and it works. It, it, it's amazing how it works. I woke up three o'clock on a Thursday morning in my apartment in Brisbane and everything wasn't working out. You know, the, the contract wasn't going to get renewed. I didn't know where I was going. And then I don't know why I just sat up in bed. And suddenly my mind went, it, it engaged in a thought that I would never thought I would engage in. And that was going back to the UK. And I sat there and I went, no, 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 you, no, you'd never go back. You'd never go back. And then all of a sudden I went, hold on a second. Just let's have a look at this. And as soon as I started to think about going back and my company break point and how, you know, everything started clicking. And it was almost like I'd been put, I put this barrier up and nailed the door shut. And the nails were slowly coming out. But once I managed to open the door, the light shone through this door. And I was like, that is where I need to go. It was a bizarre, I can remember the very moment. Mm. So from that moment, I was like, right, I'm going back to the UK. I, I put everything on Gumtree. I sold everything in my apartment within two weeks and I was on a plane out of there um, within two weeks, said goodbye to everyone, landed back in the UK. And it was at that point, I was doing a bit of work in the UK, but then I started to get consumed by that work. And once you start earning decent money, I mean, I was, I was doing surveillance work against some Russian, uh, Russian gangsters. It was <laughs> interesting work uh, but I, I could feel myself getting consumed by it again and once you start earning that money you start to rely on it and then you start you're too busy earning a living to follow your dreams so basically before long I was and I had these mental health issues going on I knew I was drinking too much I was doing this my mental state was wasn't good I was drinking to numb the noise and then at that point I went that came to a natural end again that's when I bumped into Foxy for the first time in 13 years. And I was like, you know, we got extremely drunk and we talked about, you know, we want to do our own thing, started a company called Breakpoint. It was at that point I was actually living in a cottage. My brother, because he's a pilot, an ex-Navy pilot, I was like, Justin, I'm coming home. And he was like, ah, great, but I've got a job in Malaysia. I was like, no way. He says, yeah, for the next two years. I was like, Oh, saw the silver lining straight away. There was a spare house for me. <laughs> so it was perfect. It was perfect. But when that kind of job surveillance ended, I'd met Foxy and I went, right, I want to start this company Breakpoint. I then went full on. And I knew that the first thing I had to get right was me. And that's when I put myself into the boot camp in the, in the cottage in Cornwall. I had no distractions. I had no, um, no newspapers. I still don't to this day. No, I didn't watch TV. And I, um, I really made sure that the content coming in here was um, good nutrition. You know what I mean? It was, it was, it was good, wholesome, um, and, and valuable content coming that, that was being consumed in my mental in my so mindset. The, so the things that you were reading were things that were going to help you mentally? Yeah, it's all self-development stuff. A lot of stuff I'm still love the guy, a guy called Bob Proctor, who's all about self-development um, and loads of others, podcasts. 
I, I wrote out a contract to myself, of the, which is basically a goals contract of what I would achieve in six months. I then put, I actually got a CD, drew around it and draw lines all the way through it and put all my goals around that, you know, the one main goal of achieving Breakpoint, uh, my company, and all the way around, I put, I put in every slide, one to, one to 11 on this, on this clock, I put all the things I had to do to get to my main goal. Right. And I just, yeah, I just used to focus on all those things every day. Like one of them on there was, and it wasn't, I must stop drinking because once you do that psychologically, your, your mind, um, you have to do it in a, in a, in a mindset as if you've already achieved it. So my, like my number one was, I'm so happy and grateful that I have managed to reduce my drinking. Right. It wasn't, it wasn't, you must stop drinking because that, focuses on the problem yeah. yeah do you know what i mean so mind mindset was like i'm so happy and grateful that i've i've reduced my drinking so it's a positive mindset that you've, you've it's a positive you've, mindset you've done yeah. It almost yeah because a lot of people when you look at a lot of people's inspirational quotes and stuff they're still addressing the problem and the longer you address a problem you're focusing on that problem it's still very negative it's like a lot of people who are in jobs for instance i hate being in this job the longer you think like that the more you'll you'll always be in that job mm. And you'll always hate it, you know, because, yeah, it's, it's very interesting, the psychology of it. But you have to say, you know, if you don't like my, you know, if you don't like your current circumstances, don't complain about your current circumstances. Recognize that it's a problem and look beyond that. And once you start looking beyond that and creating the visual or, or internal messaging around the fact you are no longer where you don't want to be, you'll get there. And that, for me, was that wheel. And I put myself through that. So I was, I was making plans. I was building this business. I was website, everything, all the kind of stuff. But a lot of it was visualization, meditation, but the whole nine yards, the whole nine yards. And I just knew from that incident in Iraq where I knew that visualization worked, that's why I was so heavily invested in it. I, I Honestly, every day was the same routine. I started taking care of my nutrition, I started, you know, everything, fitness, nutrition, mindset. And that was a boot camp for two months. By the time I got out of that, well, it was coming towards the end and everyone was going, oh, you got to get yourself a proper job, mate. You know, this is not working. And it got to the point where I was like going, please give me something to know this is working. I'm on the right path because I was so dedicated to, to, to my company, Breakpoint. I was like, please just give me something. And I was visualizing it. I was visualizing about being on a stage in front of thousands of people and telling them about my experiences and, and like, you know, the monkey attack and all this and special forces and how, I, you know, and, and all this positive development stuff being like a Tony Robbins kind of affair. And I was getting to the end of that. And I, well, the end of this two months and I'll start, you know, all this self doubt that everyone else was, was pushing my way was starting to absorb a little bit. So, and that was causing me to think, shit, maybe this stuff, maybe that thing was just a coincidence, coincidence in Iraq. Maybe this stuff I thought worked, doesn't work. Maybe I'm just an idiot. I don't know, you know, stop. And then I had to say, stop, no, no. This is, you're on the right path. But it was giving me nothing. And then all of a sudden, when, you know, when that self-doubt was coming in, I got a phone call from Poxy. And he was like, you know that thing we're talking about doing at Breakpoint? We talked about would you consider doing that on TV? And I was like, my, the hairs on the back of my head just stood up and I was just like tingling. And I went, are you in the pub? 
And he was like, no, no, he says, I'm stuck with the production company. They want to talk to you. I was like, no way. And it was like, that. I'll never forget that conversation. That was the start, SES Who Dares Wins. And it was like, that was the platform I visualized. Wow. Wow. It's amazing. It, yeah. how, but when you, when you actually set up Who Dares Wins, mm. there's a bit of pushback from like military, wasn't there? Like, you can't, yeah. SAS, you can't really go on TV. No, I mean, we, have, we, we, we signed a thing called the Disclosure uh, Agreement, which is basically we can't do anything, or books or anything, without it being censored first. So everything that we do to this day has to go through the MOD, um, you know, and they have to basically make sure that we're not giving away any secrets about tactics or locations and stuff like that or incidents. So... Um, but initially, because that show was in its infancy and hadn't been on TV, they were obviously extremely paranoid about what was going to be the content of it. But once they saw that, you know, everything from that show was sourced from the public domain, you know, we we weren't involved in that part. You know, uh, the production company actually sourced everything off the Internet and then came to us. You know, it wasn't a case of us giving them the information and then building the concept. Right. They can, they can, and that was how it had to be. You know, we could advise and give some, and we always have advised and give, you know, given a lot of content how it should be directed and and stuff like that. But um, it was important that, it, that everything that on that show was sourced from the public domain. There's no secrets in there. There's no nothing. At the end of the day, it's just a thrashing, mm. and it, it look it looks at the psychological aspects and the attributes you need to have. To, past special forces selection mm. doesn't even come close to any secrets or anything like that because originally you you only had males on the show but now there's females on the show as well what are your yeah. sort of thoughts around that yeah well listen i mean it was it was a natural it was it, it it was just a matter of time before that happened because obviously the the military are opening up to to take females and you know um the doors are opening for females to go on selection so um, you know, that was, I, th- I think really as well, you know, you have to get away from the facts. You, you can't keep saying, well, you know, at one point we're like, well, that's not authentic. That's not authentic, but you have to, it's a fine line. You know, at the end of the day, they need to make something that's watchable. They have to make something that's attractive to the, the viewers are all important. So it has to be important. It has to, it has to, um, you have to compromise on some things. So obviously, with that, you know the, the fact that they then bringing women into the show later on in series four, I think it was, um, that just created a whole new audience, and I think it was a brilliant thing they did that, that they did for the show. It took it to a whole new level. Mm. And now, now looking at the show, are you are you leaving the show now? Is it? Uh, left the UK one. I'm still doing the one in Australia. So I've done the first one in Australia, and that's could be a, a four-year project but you know the one in the uk it came to an end you know i, I got the news um just after coming back from australia actually and or was it just oh, just before going to australia to film the australian version and again for me i'm my life is that synchronized and, and everything now these days and i understand my path is um my path is positive and, and is aligned with what's going on in my head. So when I got a phone call, I can remember sitting there and I laughed to myself on the phone. I was, and I said to myself, you got what you wish for. 
And I was my internal messaging was this show is consuming me. This show is taking me away from my business. My priority is my business. I'm not. I don't. At the end of the day, I, I don't. I don't enjoy being a celebrity. You know, I don't. I don't even like the word "I'm a celebrity" because I feel there's. I've got a lot more to offer than um, just being a celebrity as such. Um, and for me, it was like I'd have never. I'd. I'd have, I'd have never really gone. Here's my notice. I'm. I'm out. But the universe delivered exactly what I needed, and that was the fact that that was that I couldn't have anything that was suffocating this. You know, I've got so many projects and, and businesses, and my, my business, especially with COVID, was starting to suffer. And if I was away now filming again, I can't, you know. This Breakpoint and Battle Ready 360, my businesses and my own company, all my speaking and everything, that I'm so passionate about that so passionate uh, because that falls in line with everything I did in Thailand you know helping other people is, is my aim you know Breakpoint's mission statement and it's my mission statement for everything I should say it's my mission statement really individually is to create globally identified brands recognized for the positive growth and development of others and that's my passion so the TV stuff really was starting to suffocate that your new book Scar Tissue so the synopsis reads ex-special forces soldier alex abbott escaped the middle east under a cloud now lives hand to mouth in singapore scraping a living as a gun for hire and estranged from his family abbott is haunted by ghosts of the past drinking to dull the pain life's tough but there's one upside at least he's not in baghdad but that's about to change i'm guessing I'm guessing by that synopsis that despite this being a fictional thriller, there's a lot of truths in there. There's a lot of actual true stories, names changed, places, dates changed. Am I right? One hundred percent. I mean that that is you just summed up everything there. <laughs> <laughs> it is. I mean I, that's uh, I'm, you know going into fiction was something I was. Yeah, I didn't you know because I'm so I'm so passionate about self development, blah blah blah, and that you know I really want to create a foothold in that industry or that sort of uh, that narrative but when I started to think I mean when I tell the stories of my life they sound more like a fiction story anyway you know what I mean so actually you know engaging in a fiction novel where I can get across those messages when I can still get across the same um, helping other people the same kind of things through storytelling I think that's a wonderful way to actually get the message across. And yes, the framework, the DNA of who the person is, Alex Abbott, is very much based on me. And I really think when it comes to fiction, I mean, I don't know about you, I don't know about, as soon as I see any kind of film, I think actually I will only watch films that have some truth as the backbone. 100%. Because I, yeah, because I'm, if there's no truth in that, I just, you know, like, I know kids like X-Men and all that and whatever it is, and but there's, I just don't see the point of, of, of watching that. You know, when it's when there's some truth behind it and it's talking about real-life experience, I'm just compelled to watch it straight away. And, and really, when you can put that into fiction, and that really is the framework and the DNA and the heartbeat comes from places you've been, people you've met and experiences you've had. And then there's strong messaging throughout that. I think that can be absorbed sometimes a lot easier 
than an actual self-development book or, you know, an autobiography. Ollie Ollerton, it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much for joining me and uh, best of luck with the business, Breakpoint and the new book, Scar Tissue. Thank you very much, Matt. It's been a pleasure being uh, being on your show and uh, I look forward to it coming out. Hope you enjoyed hearing from Ollie as much as I did. Coming up, we have the record-breaking explorer Molly Hughes, a Peaky Blinder offspring, and next week, it's John Chambers' incredible story about growing up in Belfast during the Troubles. And thank you so much if you've left a review. Every single one of them is genuinely appreciated. And if you liked Ollie, let me know what you thought. And thanks again for listening.